Hi, my name is R. Dallas Green. I'm glad you're here. Love to meet you. If we haven't met yet, get reacquainted. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20 in just a moment. The book of Acts was written by Luke. He is um, the, the author of the book of Acts. So the sequel to the book, Gospel of Luke, volume two in the series is Luke's account given in uh, Acts of the Apostles. Luke himself is a doctor, perhaps the personal physician to the Apostle Paul. Most likely what happened was when Paul came to the city of Troas, there was Luke, and he was facing a physical ailment. And so Luke becomes part of the missionary team. So the gospel of Luke ends in the city of Jerusalem. The book of Acts begins in the city of Jerusalem. Remember how Jesus said, you know, wait for the Holy Spirit, for you'll be baptized by the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon you, you'll become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So you could say that the book of Acts really is about the journey from Jerusalem to Rome, right? And it's in my heart to take you, those of you who can go with me, to the Holy Land, and especially Jerusalem, next year, 2024. Uh, we'll be leaving on the last week of October and staying to the first week of November, and it's 6,000 miles, but flying at 600 miles an hour, we can go from Dulles to Tel Aviv in about 10 hours. Somebody said that when Jerusalem sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Now, there's hundreds of cities that are larger than uh, Jerusalem, but you'd have to say per capita that Jerusalem gets more attention than any other city in the world. Israel today is only the size of New Jersey, about 150 miles from north to south, but it connects uh, with Europe to the west, it connects with Africa to the south, and it connects with Asia to the east. So why does Jerusalem attract so much attention? Compared to other cities, Jerusalem really is like under a microscope, right? Whatever happens there affects the rest of the world. Did you know that just a month ago, the Israeli president, whose name is Isaac Herzog, he spoke to a joint session of Congress? Did you realize that? There's only been 120 world leaders who've spoken to a joint session of Congress. So why is it so important? Why is Jerusalem and what happens there so important? I believe it's because God chose Jerusalem to bear his name. The primary reason Jerusalem is so important is that God chose it. He didn't say that about Moscow. He didn't say that about Beijing. He didn't even say it about Washington. He said, it's in Jerusalem that my name will be declared. Jerusalem is the epicenter of God's plan, his plan of redemption. We know that God chose Abraham, and Abraham lived in what's called the Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia, between Tigris and Euphrates River. And God told him to leave his homeland, his people, and go to a land he would show him. And while he was there, God gave him a son whose name was Isaac. And then God put Abram to the test. He said, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love so very dearly, and take him to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there. God was severely testing Abraham and his love for him. 
as to who was first in his life. And so early the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkeys. He put on the wood on the back of the donkey and Isaac and Abraham made the long journey to Mount Moriah. As they neared this mountain, Isaac asked a very perceptive question. Father, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt sacrifice? And Abraham said, God himself will supply the lamb. And so they went to the top of this mountain, and there Abraham was tied, Abraham tied up Isaac on the altar. He was prepared to take his knife and take his life. And God said, Abraham, Abraham, don't do anything to this boy. Spare his life. And there in the thicket was caught a ram. And the ram was sacrificed. And Abraham called, that, called God Jehovah-Jireh, the God who will provide. That happened 4,000 years ago. And that very region of Moriah is what we call now Jerusalem. And another king came along. His name was David. And David made a very foolish move. He began a census counting up his soldiers of the army. And God brought a plague upon Israel. And the prophet Gad said to David, go and make an offering at the altar that you'll make at Arana's threshing floor. So David obeyed the voice of God, and he went to that threshing floor, and he said to Aaron, I want to buy your land from you. And Aaron says, no, take it for free. I'll even supply the oxes. And Abram said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And he bought that threshing floor, and he built an altar there. What was happening was the very same place where Abram and Isaac had gone, the region of Moriah, was the very same place that Arana's threshing floor was, the city of Jerusalem. 500 years after David's desire was to build a place there, the city of Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonians. And 500 years after that, there came a man who was born about five miles from Jerusalem, he grew up in Nazareth, about 75 miles away. He chose his disciples. He performed miracles. But the Jewish leaders were threatened by him. They plotted against him. Jesus said many times, I must go up to Jerusalem. And there will be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the city. Jesus knew he must go to Jerusalem. Eventually, he'd be arrested and tried and crucified. And Jesus would lay down his life in the place where Abram was told to sacrifice his son, where David dreamed of building a house, where Solomon built a temple, where thousands of sacrifices were made. So it was in the heart of the Apostle Paul to go back to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. This was the place where God had poured out his spirit upon the church. The church was born. And now he's giving his very last talk to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Let me read a couple of verses to you from this section of Acts chapter 20. It says in verse, verse 20 of chapter 20, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. Verse 27, 
For I didn't shrink back from declaring to you all that God wants you to know. Verse 28, so guard yourself and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers. For I know something, that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in after I leave, not sparing the flock. And even some of your own group will distort the truth. The call here was for these individuals to rise up to become shepherds. The one thing we know about shepherds is that shepherds know their sheep and know their names. And the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Yesterday, Debbie and I were somewhere and someone recognized me and said, do you remember me? Because I heard your voice. She had, her family had been part of our church for a long time, and she heard my voice, and she knew that voice, and she said, do you remember me? And I said, yes. You see, shepherds lead and feed the flock. They guide the flock to green pastures and still waters. They guard and protect the flock from wolves and bears and roaring lions. And in my office is this picture of a shepherd, and there on the horizon are several wolves. And his mindful of the well-being of the sheep. You see, if a sheep begins to be sickly, shepherds would examine their diet. And if a sheep were to come down with a disease, the shepherd would bring medicine to heal the sheep. And if the sheep were to fall into a hole, the shepherd would come and help the sheep out of the hole. And the sheep got dirty, you know what the shepherd would clean it with? This is true, woolite. Woolite cleanser cleanses sheep wool very nicely. So what is happening in this text is that Paul is entering into this handing over the reins of power. The, he's passing the mantle to the next generation. He's saying, I've done my work of being your shepherd, and now I'm raising up shepherds here to take care of you. They're going to proclaim to you the gospel. So let's take a little dive into the truth. The gospel itself means good news. The good news has to do with the person and work of Jesus. The good news is that God is good and merciful and kind and generous. And the God of heaven is perfect. The bad news is that we are all imperfect and we've all sinned. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the good news is that Jesus is the Son of God, and he went to a cross to pay for our sins. He died like a common criminal on a Roman cross. And there on the cross, he was dying to pay a debt he did not owe, because we had a debt we could not pay. Imagine somebody just paid off your mortgage, or paid off your college loan, or paid off your credit card bill. You would definitely love them. Even greater is what Jesus did on the cross. They took him down from the cross and they laid him in a rich man's tomb. You see, Jesus did a lot of borrowing while he was here. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He borrowed a cross to be crucified on. And he borrowed a tomb just for three days to be buried into. But Jesus couldn't stay in the tomb. 
And on the third day, Jesus conquered death and rose up from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen. And if you confess Jesus as your Lord and you believe in your heart that He has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. And if you get saved, it is by the grace of God. And because I love you and I want you to know the truth, I want to talk for a moment about some of the lies that distort the gospel. False doctrine number one. One lie that is out there is you must speak in tongues in order to be saved. You say, Pastor R, what is the gift of tongues? Is it still in operation today? So let me give you the spectrum of what people believe. On one end of the spectrum, some would say that the gift of tongues ceased. This is called cessationalist, cessationist. At Pentecost, the original gift was given to the apostles, and God enabled them to speak a language, a foreign language, that they had never learned. It's as if I never spoke Japanese, but now I can speak Japanese. It's like if I were in Haiti, I'd never spoke Creole, but now I can speak Creole. They didn't understand what they were saying, but their hearers heard the word of God in their native tongue. It was a sign to unbelievers. It was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Remember Joel? He said, in the last days, the latter days, God will pour out his spirit, and your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. Jesus promised that when he got back to heaven, he would send his spirit, and he kept his promise. The cessationists argue that the apostles' age is over, the canon is complete, and the gift has ceased. On the other end of the spectrum is our charismatic brothers and sisters. They would argue that in the life of a believer, there is a second baptism. And when that happens, a person speaks in tongues, and their prayer language becomes part of their experience. In the middle of the continuum is what I would call the continuationist. They believe that God has not changed. He gave gifts and can give gifts to anybody he wishes. The gift of tongues may or may not be given, but they aren't the norm. That is to say that not every believer has them. I believe charismatic and non-charismatic believers can live in harmony as long as we give each other freedom. I personally haven't been given the gift of tongues. Neither have I begged God for it. But here's where false doctrine comes in. If a charismatic preacher says you have to speak in tongues to be saved, they have crossed the line. You don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. And the church went, amen. amen. Your salvation isn't contingent on a subsequent experience. You see, the book of Acts was written descriptive of what was happening in the first century church. It's not necessarily prescriptive to what happens to every believer in the 21st century. To say you have to speak in tongues to get saved is false doctrine. That is a false gospel. That is not true. That's only our first false doctrine. <laughs> false doctrine number two, the prosperity gospel. You say, this is going to be a real fun sermon. That's right. You're going to talk about false doctrines. The prosperity gospel is the idea that embedded in the gospel, 
Part of the finished work of Jesus Christ is a promise by God that our lives will be marked by health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, is your life marked by health, wealth, and prosperity? The proponents of the prosperity gospel argue because what if Jesus has done on the cross, you can t- tap into a vault of blessings, and the key that unlocks the vault is faith. You have to have enough faith. They say if you can believe it, you can receive it. If you can name it, you can claim it. You can have it. They, they cite that by his stripes we are healed. They promise you're always close to a breakthrough. The question is, is the cross, what Jesus did there, a promise that you will always be healthy, always be wealthy, and always be prosperous? The promise is that if you have enough faith, the promise is that God guarantees you health and wealth. What would you say to somebody who has been diagnosed with lymphatic cancer? What would you say? Should that person send $59.95 to a faith healer in return receive a prayer cloth? The Bible says if you are sick, you should call for the elders of the church to pray over you and anoint you with oil. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. You see, God has a plan for the healing of his people. Would you say to a believer in Haiti who makes $2 a day that God's promise to you is God's going to make you wealthy if you give those $2 to the prosperity preacher? You see, there's a lot of falsehood out there today being perpetrated as faith. A favorite term of the prosperity gospel is what's called positive confession. False doctrine number three, the, the positive confession movement, speaking things into existence. This is called the word of faith. The word of faith is always associated with prosperity gospel. The premise is God himself has creative power. God created everything, the universe, by speaking a word. God said, let there be light, let there be man made in my image. So we are like God. We have the ability to create with our words. We can bring something out of nothing. We can speak healing into existence. We can speak wealth into existence. Now, in every false teaching, there is some truth, right? Do our words have power? Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. We can give somebody a life-giving word, an encouraging word, or we can take the wind out of someone's sails. Jesus himself calmed the storm. Do we have the power to tell the winds to stop blowing? In the most recent storm, when the sky turned black, could we command the wind to not blow? I decided to try this out at the beach. We had built um, a little, um, we had put our chairs down, an umbrella down, and the kids were building like, you know, some sandcastles. And so the waves were coming in. 
So I decided I'm going to command the wave to not go across my feet. I said, wave, you do not move any further than you're about to move. And guess what? My feet got wet, the sand castle went down, the chairs had to move back. You see, I was talking to B. Brown about this. I said, B, tell me about what's happened at your house. He said, we suffered the loss of three trees. Now, I'm sure that Molly and B, when the storm was brewing, was asking God for his favor, for his protection, for God to watch over them, to keep them safe, to heed the warnings, right? But the positive confession movement would say, we speak things into existence if we have the word of faith. I like to say that there's positive affirmations to enter into agreement with the Word of God. So I wrote down a few of these that would be helpful maybe to you in terms of what we can confess on a positive note before the Lord. Number one, I am a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Number two, Jesus died for my sin. Therefore, I am dead to sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. Number three, Jesus is risen. I've been raised to new life in Christ, Romans 6, 4. No weapon that is fashioned against us is going to prosper, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. God has good plans for my life, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I take every thought captive to obedience in Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.4. I don't speak negative, unwholesome words, Ephesians 4, verse 29. I edify and build people up, Romans 15.2. I am slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger, James 1.19. I meditate on God's word all day long, Psalm 1.2. I am a giver because it's more blessed to give than receive. Well, you definitely get the idea, right? When you, when you begin to read Scripture and you identify a promise and now you enter an agreement with that promise and you personalize it, take it inside, now that becomes a positive confession. These false doctrines align with what is happening in America. Many would argue that there is now no objective truth. There is only my truth and your truth. My truth works for me, and your truth works for you, but my truth is objective, right? I am what I say I am. If you believe you are a man trapped in a woman's body, then of course you can transition. There's plenty of social media influencers out there who want to steer you in that direction. I heard of a 70-year-old woman, and she took a job at Starbucks, not because she needed the money, because she just loved people. And so in her store were two people transitioning. And in their break, they would continually go to the social media to be affirmed in the path they were going. She was trying to convey to them the fact that you're beautiful, God loves you as you are. You don't have to change out your sex. I heard of a, two lesbians that got married, and one wanted to transition to being a man. Her partner um, found herself in a dilemma. 
She said, this was really hard for me because if I stay married, I'm married to a man, but I'm a lesbian, I'm supposed to be attracted to women. What I'm trying to say is our culture is so confused. There's so many lies being taught in our culture. False doctrine number four, progressive Christianity. This is one that is so subtle. It promises you you can have the best of this world and also Christianity. You can have Christ on your own terms. You can remain in whatever lifestyle you choose. You can accept the parts of Christianity you like, but you don't have to sort of run with all of it. The truth is that God calls us to a relationship. And Jesus said, if any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. What Paul is saying here is this. I want you to guard yourself and guard the flock over whom God has made you overseers, the very flock he purchased with his own blood. For there will come false teachers like vicious wolves who will try to deceive the flock. Even from your own people, some will try to distort the truth. But you use that gift of discernment and you compare what's being said with the word of God and see if what the person is saying lines up to what God is saying. Let's go back to our text, chapter 20, verse 33. This is Paul saying, I gave more than I took. Verse 33 says, I never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than receive. The city of Ephesus was a very rich town. There was silver and silversmiths there who fashioned this silver into idols. When Paul preached the gospel, many were leaving behind their idols and idolatry and beginning to follow Jesus. They became so upset, they started a riot. And Paul said, I never coveted someone's silver or their gold or their clothing. I worked with my own hands. I made tents to take care of my own needs as well as the needs of others. Because we remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Jesus himself was about to go to the cross. He was eating at the house of Simon the leper. Now, there's no record of Simon the leper being healed, but most likely Jesus is with the man who he healed. And as they were eating dinner, a woman came into the room with a bottle of perfume, spikenard, nard. It was most likely a family heirloom. Something passed down to her from her mother, maybe part of her wedding dowry, the most precious thing she had. And she took that perfume and she poured it onto Jesus' head. And the room was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And one of the disciples, his name was Judas, he said, why this waste of perfume? This could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. For the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. She anointed me for my burial. And what she did 
will be remembered whenever this gospel is preached. And that happened in the first century, and now 20 centuries later, we remember the generosity, the lavish generosity of this woman pouring this perfume onto Jesus' head. What Paul said is that I gave more than I ever took. I worked with my hands to provide for myself and my people because I learned that real life is about giving, not about taking. And third, I made spiritual connections with fellow believers. Look at chapter 20, verse 36 to 38. When Paul finished speaking, he knelt down and he prayed with them. You see, Paul believed in the power of prayer. Now, we have built, one of the things we built recently is a prayer room. If you go out of that door to the right, what used to be called the family room is now called the prayer room. Paul knew the road ahead would not be easy. Savage wolves would try to creep in. False teachers would try to distort the truth. They would need to have wisdom and discernment. And they all cried as they embraced and kissed each other. This was a very, very tender scene. They would never see his face again. He had poured his life into them for two years. And they were all sad because he said they'd never see him again. Turning to chapter 21, we find that Paul now is making his way back to Jerusalem. And he made a stop at this town called Tyre. Look with me at chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. It says, we went ashore and we found the local believers. Now, Paul didn't start this church. He had to search to find the believers there. And once he found them, he stayed an entire week. And they learned that Paul was headed to Jerusalem. And they prophesied that Paul should not go down to Jerusalem. You see, what Paul's heart was, was to unify the church, to take from the Gentile churches a gift to the poor people in Jerusalem. Paul was headed to Jerusalem, but they were saying, Paul, don't do it. Don't go down to Jerusalem. Surely you're going to be imprisoned there, arrested there. Paul's motivation was pure. He had a love for his Jewish countrymen and a holy passion for the truth. And the people prophesied that Paul would suffer down in Jerusalem but he was bound and determined to go. Look at verse 8. Paul, in his journey, came to the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now, I love the fact that Philip, beside his name, is called the Evangelist. Because Philip's passion was the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the people were flushed out of Jerusalem, Philip went north into Samaria, and there was a revival in Samaria, and God was doing miracles and signs in Samaria, and God was using Philip, and they took him to a de desert road, you remember? On the desert road, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, and he was reading from the book of Isaiah, and Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, how can I? And explained to him about Jesus and the cross, and the Ethiopian eunuch believed, and he says, there's the water. What forbids me from being baptized? And Philip baptized this man who carried the gospel back to Ethiopia. Now, what's interesting to me in the story is Philip and Stephen were very close friends. 
When the widows were being overlooked in Jerusalem, the Greek-speaking widows, they chose Philip and Stephen to minister to the widows. Stephen became the first Christian martyr, and Saul was there at that very scene. The, the coats of people were laid at the feet of Saul. He consented to the death of Stephen. And now he's in the house of Philip the evangelist. What I believe must have happened was that Philip from his heart had forgiven the Apostle Paul. God had, he had seen that the cross of Jesus was sufficient to pay for his sin. And that now Paul was on a very different path and they could have fellowship one with the other. What a beautiful scene to see Philip the evangelist and Paul the apostle spending time in his house. And it says he had four daughters, and they all were prophetesses. And we go finally to chapter 21, verses 10 to 12. There arose a prophet whose name was Agabus, and he took Paul's belt off his body. And he put his hands in the belt like this and said, this is what's going to happen when you come down to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested, turned over to the Gentiles. You're going to be imprisoned. Paul had been warned in city after city after city that hardship, that trials, that suffering would await him. But he understood that this was what God was asking him to do. And what happens is that Luke and the others pleaded with him, please, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul was determined. He had set his heart toward going. You see, he had a heart for his own people. He wanted to deliver that gift. He wanted to unite the church. And he wanted to do God's will. Look at verse 14. It says, we begged Paul not to go, but then finally we couldn't persuade him, and we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Paul was faithful to his task. He had a specific task. God chose him to be an instrument to bear witness to Gentile kings and their people, to his own people of Israel. God told him, this is how much you're going to suffer in your life but he stayed steady on the task and he took the gospel down to Jerusalem. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we hear the beautiful heart of the Apostle Paul, as he's turning over the ministry to the next generation and raising up these shepherds who would guard the very flock, who would feed the flock, who would protect them from these wolves, these vicious wolves. So God, would you grant to us the gift of discernment. As we walk through this world and we hear various points of view, could we compare what is being said with the truth of your word? As we've identified this morning some false doctrines, some false teaching, help us, Lord, to be like the Bereans who examined the things that were being said with the Word of God to see whether there was agreement. And in our own lives, Lord, would you allow us to appropriate the promises you've made 
into personal identity statements. That God, we would know the truth, that we would discern errors, and we would help people to uh, see the very truths of Scripture as you point them out to us. Father, build a very strong foundation in our life. Allow us, Lord, to know the truth from the error, from the falsehood, from what's right. And uh, Lord, we just pray that our lives will bear much fruit, that God, you will walk with us as we walk through this world, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. His love upon this foundation so that when the storms come, right, the winds blow against the house, the rains fall down, the floods threaten it, the house stands firm because it's built on a solid foundation. I want to thank you guys for all the generosity toward uh, Chris's family, Chris Noyes. You know, they suffered a great loss. Their house, his mother's house burned down. And so many generous gifts come, come in. The house is pretty much furnished. Um, appliances are in the kitchen. There's, you know, utensils to eat from. Thank you. Thank you each one who gave and prayed for them because it's a beautiful thing to see the church just standing with somebody in the midst of a trial. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us truth. Thank you that Jesus himself is the truth. Thank you that the truth sets us free. Thank you that the truth is very, very powerful. And we need to discern what someone's saying as to whether it agrees with the word of God or not. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us a great sense of wisdom and discernment walking to this world. School's about to begin. Teachers are going back. Students will soon go, soon go back. College campuses will be opening. Father, I pray for steadiness and strength, discernment, that, God, we could, we could walk out these lives in such a way that we're not seduced into error, not entrapped by false doctrines. Lord, help us to know the truth so very, very well that we can pick out when someone is off. Lord, we really want you to be glorified through our lives. We want our children to grow up knowing the truth. So help us to pass on the truth to them, to the next generation, that indeed they can walk in the truth. And John said, I had no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Father, that's our heart's desire. That's how we give these hard messages about the lies and errors out there, that we could discern truth. God, help us to walk in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.